This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guests on Off the Shelf are from Baker Tilly. Uh, I'd like to welcome Jeff Clayton, Julia Smith, and Leo Alvarez. They're all principals in Baker Tilly's Government Contractor Solutions Group. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thank you, Roger. Excited to be here. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. We can cover a wide-ranging set of issues that you guys deal with, whether it's supply chain, you know, you're looking at Oasis Plus and where that's headed, uh, M&A issues and that sort of thing. But let's start with something I know you, you, you've uh, started focusing on and thinking about a lot, and that's um, you know, the handling of the PPP loans, you know, coming out of COVID and, you know, what companies need to be thinking about and where, you know, the, you know, where oversight is and audits and how the trends are there. So Jeff, first of all, can you just kind of take us back a little bit and, and, you know, explain what the, what PPP stands for and what that program was and, you know, and how it was executed by the Small Business Administration? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, so PPP uh, stands for Paycheck Protection Program. Um, and, and the idea here was that as the as the pandemic was raging on, uh, there are a number of businesses that were struggling, right? Um, and the government, uh, rather than those companies laying people off, uh, the government decided to help out, uh, allow companies to take loans uh, to be used uh, to keep employees on the payroll. Um, and you know, I think they ended up issuing what, what I've seen estimates uh, around eight hundred billion dollars in loans through that program. So, um, and the the idea there was to you know let people maintain their employees, you know, while business frankly cratered right during the pandemic, right? So, um, and you mentioned forgiveness. If I guess if they actually utilized the money for what they, the intended purpose under the, under the law and the regulations or, you know, the program. Um, So now we're coming out of the pandemic and we've got, um, you know, I guess the SBA and the government going back and sort of taking a look at, you know, what was done with the money and the companies. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, where we are right now? Yeah, and that's exactly right, Roger. You know, if, if companies met certain conditions and used the funds for what, what they were intended for, then they would ultimately be forgiven. So rather than a loan um, that they had to pay back, it would be forgiven. Um, you know, given that there were, you know, uh, I, I said before, you know, approximately $800 billion issued through this, the government is obviously concerned that the money was used the way it was supposed to be. And I've seen some estimates that uh, up to or even beyond $80 billion of that $800 billion uh, may have been fraudulent. Um, you know, overall, as part of the overall CARES Act, which was issued during the pandemic, several trillion dollars went out. Um, but what we're starting to see now, because the government is, you know, concerned that the money was used appropriately, is SBA OIG conducting audits of these PPP loans and their, you know, eligibility for forgiveness. Um, not surprisingly, they're starting with the largest loans that were doled out under the PPP. Uh, program, which were $10 million. 
uh, and they've made statements saying that any loans over two billion dollars would be audited. Um, and in reality, they can go audit any loan, whether it, even, even if it's under uh, two million dollars. You know, interestingly as well, uh, I think as part of the CARES Act, uh, a special IG for pandemic recovery was established, and they seem to have fairly broad authority uh, for overseeing funds that were issued under the CARES Act uh, as well. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting to see wh where they come in uh, and what they end up looking at. Um, on top of all that, we've started to see uh, or hear about uh, whistleblower cases popping up uh, related to these PPP loans. Um, you know, over the years, we've seen a lot of that associated with um, the, the schedules program, uh, pricing issues, trade agreements act issues, um, with drug pricing and other things like that. Um, and, you know, it almost became kind of a, a cottage industry in some cases, I think, with, with, with people going around looking for issues that they could uh, file a QTM matter on. Uh, so you wonder if, if, if that'll start occurring here as well. Right. So they'll argue somebody within the company may argue that, you know, allege that the company did not actually use the money for the, you know, to maintain employment, you know, that sort of mm -hmm. thing, used it for other purposes. Um, so. In that context, you know, it's almost like a gathering storm, I guess, perhaps, you know, <laughs> um, you know what should uh, companies be uh, thinking about or aware of um, as they, you know, as they, as, as they approach a potential audit or, you know, looking back at, you know, how they use the money and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, the, the, the approaching storm is a good one. I, I, I used to work with a guy who years back, uh, described it as all these little ticking time bombs sitting around out there. So, um, but it's a good question. You, you do want to be uh, prepared for an audit, uh, particularly if your loan was $2 million or, or greater, as we said, um, you know, it, it, for, for some companies who have applied for forgiveness, they may have responded to, they, they, well, they've provided certain information uh, to support the forgiveness. And they may have even responded at some point to a forgiveness questionnaire. Uh, that was being requested by lenders for some period of time. Um, now, when it comes to an audit, I think some of the same documentation and information that was provided um, uh, as part of forgiveness, uh, as well as in that questionnaire, uh, might be requested. Um, and, and depending on really when your loan was issued, whether you're a for-profit or not-for-profit entity, um, uh, and some other factors, uh, th there's different information that could be requested, different types of requirements that might need to be met uh, for you to really and truly be eligible for forgiveness. Um, you know, I can add that uh, Baker Tilly has been reviewing some of our clients' loans for forgiveness of eligibility, not in association with SBA audits uh, up to this point, um, but really to assess, you know, kind of quality of revenue during financial statement uh, statement audits and, and potential tax implications and, and those types of things. So going through that, uh, I think we've gained some experience in understanding uh, the types of information that could be requested, what conclusions might be drawn, uh, and those types of things. And and really what. Uh, we're looking for in those types of reviews include things like number of employees at the company and the methodology that was used to calculate the number of employees, what cap constitutes an affiliate when determining the number of employees, which is similar to or not similar to, I think it follows the same regulations that that SBA applies when determining if a company is a small business or not uh, when it's an employee based uh, makes code. So, uh, you know, that's interesting, like just 
the the fundamental things like i was thinking about thinking the you know about the cash flow and where the money went mm -hmm. and did it go into people's paychecks through there but even just the number of employees can be an obviously a, that's a basic thing and more obvious than i would think of but just even the number of employees you know beginning and end you know could, could maybe an indicator it is and then yeah like, like you said going beyond that you get past some of those simple indicators uh, and then you move into things like how the money was used and and what you know kind of payroll and non-payroll costs were re reimbursed which can be tricky right um to, to to kind of follow and track for a complex company um in addition to that you know uh we focus on working with government contractors. So for government contractors, it can also get even uh, more complex uh, because the government doesn't really want you double dipping, right? And, right. Uh, essentially, uh, if they're paying for your employees already through a contract in some way, shape, or form, they don't also want to pay for your employees again through a loan. Um, it doesn't mean you can't have accepted a loan. Uh, it, it just can get, get kind of complex. Right. And maybe, yeah. maybe is, are you, is that typically in a cost reimbursement type contract situation where that really becomes the issue about whether the government's paying the cost for the labor at the same time somebody has a loan and how you handle yeah, I mean, the two sort of two buckets of money? I, yeah, I think it's most important and most obvious under a cost type scenario, uh, but it can apply as well uh, also under fixed price contracts. Uh, there can be some things to kind of figure out there. Yeah, and it's kind of, yeah, that, that would be tough trying to figure out how to, you know, separate. I don't know what you would do, separate the money. You're the, you, you guys are the experts. What would you do in that case? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, so it's tricky going back in time and doing it. But, you know, I think if, if you were managing it well uh, all along the way, you would have accounted for it in a specific way um, right. as you were running your business. Yeah, just uh, one one additional point. Uh, you know, going back to the whistleblowers uh, uh, mentioned earlier, I, I think it's interesting. You know, a lot of this loan information is public, right? So, sure, been hearing about whistleblowers potentially using the information to mine affiliation information, and as you know, the affiliation rules are complex; they're not straightforward at all. Um, uh, so, a, a lot of organizations may have, you know, may not have actually been under the 500 employee threshold. Um, in order to qualify. So that's where, again, you'll, you, we're expecting to see some additional activity when that starts to get discovered during the forgiveness period. So, I mean, Jeff, so my big takeaway, it's, it sounds to me, is like documentation, just the fundamentals, right, of making sure you've documented what you've done and it's clear and you, it, you, know, you can follow it um, is the key. It's a key to sound compliance period, but it sounds even more so in the case of, when you're you, when you're essentially using this money to help run your to directly run your business operations, is that fair? It, it is, yeah. And I think if you if you if you pretty much know you're going to be audited, then you might as well get out in front of it and start pulling together that documentation, right? Right, right. So we're up on the break, but when we come back, I think we want to shift to talk about something that's at top of mind across uh, government, um, even to the point where they're you know, looking at creating a new part 40 in the FAR to focus on, mm -hmm. you know, the cyber issues and that sort of thing, supply chain, you know, putting all that stuff there in one single place. That's kind of interesting development. Uh, and we'll talk about that and other scrim and uh, software supply chain security when we come back. My guests today are Jeff Clayton, 
Julia Smith and Leo Alvarez. They're principals with Baker Tilly's Government Contractor Solutions Group. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Julia Smith, Jeff Clayton, and Leo Alvarez. They are principals in Baker Tilly's Government Contractor Solutions Group. And first segment, we were talking about PPP loans and what uh, you know the state of play there. And I, I got a couple more questions on that, and then we will you know, uh, transition to talking of is very different subject, supply chain, uh, secure software, supply chain, security, and scrim. But first, just back on the PPP uh, uh, issue, can Leo, can you t- just walk through the process a little bit about, you know, the, what they review and that sort of thing? Um, sure. Yeah, there are, there are a couple of uh, main milestones that happen along the way, right? We have the borrower, they, they will submit the forgiveness application to the bank. The bank has, um, I believe it's 60 days to review the submission. It, it's interesting because the, the bank, you know, the, the statute really requires very little of the banks in, in, um, uh, in the review process. So typically that you know, will, will go off to the, um, to the SBA and then they'll have 90 days to conduct their own uh, uh, analysis as to whether uh, the borrower should receive forgiveness or, or, or not. And if there's any issues that, they'll, that they see, they can refer it over to, um, to the IG for a more uh, in-depth uh, analysis. There's also an appeals process, you know, depending on what the final decision is that the SBA has. So that's sort of the, the administrative steps um, of, of going through the, through the review process. Uh, Julia? Yeah, no, um, I'd like to add to, with that sort of truncated timeline, um, it's good to be prepared. So if if you receive um, notice that you're going to be audited for your PPP loan, um, the forgiveness is a pretty standard. 60% of funds have to be spent on payroll, but there are some exceptions to that. So do the due diligence and the analysis to look at where your business operations are, sort of pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. Uh, your number of employees, your ability to fill open roles for qualified employees. And um, if you had employees which, um, you know, gave you sort of the good faith offer to to return and they did not, um, you want to be, you know, noting those things and documenting those things to be prepared throughout the audit. Great. Yeah, that's great advice. And and Jeff, at the same time, all through this process, it it sounds that... Your assessment is that you know if you if you got a larger loan you're 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 probably in for some additional scrutiny at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's right. Right. So, so be prepared and document, document, document. Right. So um, now now let's uh, turn sort of radically to a different topic um, and one that's um, on the top of mind of you know folks throughout the government contracting community who are in the IT space or even just supply chain period is scrim and also software supply chain security. Um, and what is the latest uh, developments in that area, Leo? Yeah, there's uh, there's been a lot of activity. Um, two weeks ago, the, the NSA put out some uh, guidance and recommended security practices, but I think the bigger news is just this week, OMB released uh, a short eight page memo that requires federal agencies to obtain confirmation in the form of a self-attestation from software producers that they're utilizing secure software development practices that are consistent with NIST guidance, depending on the, the criticality of the procurement and the, and the software in use. So 
Um, you know, if an, or, if an organization isn't meeting one of the practices, it, you know, it's good to see that the guidance is, um, says that an organization can submit a POAM, which um, industry associations have been um, applauded um, uh, uh, this week. Uh, but I, I think where, where the rubber meets the road is it, it looks like beyond the, the self-attestation, agencies are required to obtain artifacts from the software providers that demonstrate conformance with the practices. So this will be, be things like an SBOM or notice that the organization participates in a vulnerability disclosure program. Um, so we're, we're expecting this guidance to have a, a, a major impact on commercial software providers where you know, you've got two universes, one where you have providers that readily meet, you know, the NIST guidance and then a, a universe of, of providers that don't. And that's going to impact the risk calculus for agencies when they're making award um, for federal contracts. And then, of course, you know, if the company doesn't want to do a self-attestation, well, they're likely going to, you know, not be in the game at all. And that, and that could mean removal of, of some of those software items from existing contract vehicles. So um, overall, I think it will um, drive a lot of contract activity in the future. So in that context, like you said, like you know, a division of the universe here, what are some of the, you know, the challenges that you all see uh, from that are going to be around the implementation of this? Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the NTIA, they're, they're, they're the group that have published sort of the, the minimum elements that um, appear in, in an SBOM. That group has been um, uh, uh, been doing its work since 2018, and despite the number of years that they've been together and they've done great work, there still isn't consensus on the dissemination, the ingestion, or the use of SBOM data. So, you know, I, I was recently at a conference and one of the panelists publicly said, look, I, I don't want to house, protect, or maintain any of this SBOM data. They, they saw it as a risk. They just really wanted the, the vulnerabilities um, that may be present. Um, you know, the, the other issue is the consistency of the data, you know, from one organization to the other. I mean, we're in, in, in our field, it's not unusual to see organizations that have multiple identifiers for different companies that are present within different systems. That is also the case with software um, due, to, due to a lack of, of uh, standardization. So that can really create a lot of messiness and, and complicate things. Um, so one of the things that um, you know, a lot of the working groups have been focused on is coming up with canonical automated ways to link identifiers and then um, ways to, to link that to security vulnerability data. And that's where the real value from SBOMS comes. It's, it's how do you action this and how do you um, gain a sense of what your vulnerabilities are and then mitigate those? Not, not all vulnerabilities are a problem if you understand where they are and, and how to sort of put a fence around them. Yeah, so when you, what you described there, and I just started thinking back about like CMMC. <laughs> and, yeah. and I guess what, what, what strikes me as part of this is that, you know, CM, CMMC is DOD's approach, right? DHS has a different approach. Mm -hmm. You know, presumably GSA may have to meet everybody's approach because everybody's their customer. Mm -hmm. And here with, um, you know, this, you know, this effort, the attestation, the artifacts, and that sort of, the agencies could have different sort of standards or different requirements for those, could they not? And does that, create potential chaos 
around what you have to use, submit one set of artifacts or whatever for one agency, but you know, somebody else requires more or less, or there's no, there's, it seems there's no, you know, level set there. Is that, is that fair? I, I'll put CMMC aside because I think there's been challenges with uh, the rollout of that framework and and yeah I'm just saying that yeah, for purposes of for, for, not everybody for, has to sign you know agencies <laughs> don't necessarily have to do CMMC yep. you know DHS doesn't GSA doesn't do it's DOD's deal right now yeah I you know I, I think one of the points of feedback that you know I've I've been seeing from from trade associations is again this is a, a developing area that's nascent consistency and approach is still coming along mm -hmm. and um because of that there is uh, an acknowledgement that as the guidance develops and as the standards develop agencies need to have flexibility in how they go ahead and implement these things so the omb memo says look you're going to have to 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 get this depending on the criticality of the procurement so again it goes back to that risk-based approach which i think is is actually prudent and should um, you know, and, and should help hopefully make things a little bit easier for contractors in the future, rather than the CMMC exercise when it originally came out, which was you you're either in or you're out. There's no flexibility. That's it. Right, right. So, and you know what, Leo, Jeff, and Julia, we're up on the break, but when I come back, I want to finish up this discussion and just you know, what advice do you have for contractors who are trying to navigate? you know, these requirements, you know, uh, uh, you know, through regard to the SBOM and the, you know, the OMB memo and all this stuff. So we'll tackle that. And then we can turn to Oasis Plus. And I think, Julia, you're going to be focusing a lot on that. And we can talk about that, where things are with that as well. Again, a sort of radical shift, but you guys cover, you cover all the bases, I'm telling you. So my guests today are Jeff Clayton, Julia Smith, and Leo Alvarez. They are principals and Baker Tilly's Government Contractor Solutions Group. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guests today are Julia Smith, Jeff Clayton, and Leo Alvarez. They are principals and Baker Tilly's Government Contractor Solutions Group. And we've we're we're talking on a wide-ranging discussion of different, you know, interesting, you know, oversight issues, procurement programs, and that sort of thing. And um, you know, last segment, we were talking about scrim and software supply chain and software build materials and, you know, memos that come out that came out just this week on it. And, um, and, and Leo sort of recap where we are and what companies should be thinking about as they try to navigate these new requirements. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think one, make sure that you have a good understanding of what the NIST uh, um, secure software development uh, framework is and and um, you have an understanding of, of what kind of uh, artifacts may need to be able to, to be produced in order to prove compliance. Um, and, and, you know, generally just don't think of this as sort of a check the box type exercise. It's certainly not from the government's perspective. They want to assure that you can attest to compliance with, with the standards and, you know, the potential impact on national security is significant enough where there can be real teeth around this. And, um, you know, you can see that uh, already with some of the, uh, the way the enforcement community is, is, is talking about this particular subject. Um, you know, so certainly, you know, keep that in mind. And um, the other thing that we've been seeing, of course, is just the presence of 
scrim plan requirements and procurements. I would imagine that this is going to be a, another area that will need to be addressed in in those uh, you know uh, scrim plans that are submitted to agencies as as part of uh, contract approval. And, and Leo, I'll just add uh, onto that as well. We've been focused largely on software and commercial software, right? But um, you know, you mentioned it before, Roger. They're 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 uh, you, know, you know establishing far part forty are looking to do that, right? Focused on uh, supply chain uh, supply chain as it relates to cybersecurity. So I think broadly, more broadly than software companies, other companies, if you interact with the government, particularly if you house government data in your systems. Uh, you're going to need to be aware of these things and think about them. And 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 to your point, Leo, we're seeing these scrim plan requirements across a variety of different procurements. So right, yeah, it goes back to that that old um, you know delivered uncompromised report concept of you know procurement is happening under a foundation of security. Um, so that needs to be omnipresent throughout. And um, you know, so it's something that organizations need to be keeping in mind. Yeah, I'm just listening to the growing set of requirements, and I get it. And security is, you know, national defense security is paramount. Same time, like the question I sort of always have, what is the private sector doing? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you know, they've got to protect their intellectual property. That is the, you know, the crown jewels of any company, you know. And, you know, where does commercial practice intersect with, what the government's requiring and if the government's doing things that are radically different does that you know again there's lots of data about the shrinking industrial base and the you know that sort of defense so do you see any you know just i'm just kind of just any thoughts in that area just from a sort of crystal ball perspective leo yeah it's this is such a a difficult area to kind of um you know, project out on, you know, the, which again, goes back to the risk-based approach of how it is that you classify procurements and, and that will drive, you know, the, the set or the pool of contractors that are going to be competing. This is a unique customer and they have unique requirements, uh, different things that they have to contend with than, you know, are present in the purely commercial market. So, you know, unfortunately, cybersecurity is going to be a, it's a, already a significant issue. Um, and I, I don't expect that to let up in the, in, in, in the future. So unfortunately, there, you know, I, I there likely will continue to be a, a, an impact on, on some of the smaller organizations that, you know, don't want right, to small businesses. Yeah, yeah. Make that kind of investment. Yeah. Yeah. It's the world we live in, right? Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so let's turn to, the crystal ball, sort of, I guess you can talk about, uh, Leo, where Oasis <laughs> Plus, again, we're radically shifting topics, uh, Oasis Plus, which is GSA's follow on to Oasis. I'm glad to see the name has you know, finally gotten back to, you know, Oasis, you know, but Oasis Plus as opposed to Big Mac or Services <laughs> Mac, you know, I yeah. think this, this is a, a huge positive step. Um, you know, your take on where things are and what's going on. Leo. Yeah. So the, the Oasis program is one that's sort of near and dear to my heart. Cause I've, you know, my, my career has shifted in, in more of a compliance direction over the years. And I've been focused on more, you know, scrim issues and things of that nature, but 
you know, back in 2013 and, and uh, you know, years ago, I was focused more on, on you know, procurements. And uh, so, you know, uh, Oasis was unique in that it was sort of the first program that was using a scorecard, helped make things a little bit easier for GSA in, in, in reviewing the volume of offers that they were receiving um, and help limit some of the protests uh, risk that was, you know, typically pre present with these big bellwether procurements. Um, so, you know, lo and behold, we're 10 years, you know, almost 10 years into the program, it's going to be sunsetting and we're talking about um, uh, Oasis uh, uh, 2.0, as it were. Um, but, you know, just seeing how GSA has done the rollout, I, I think I've um, appreciated the iterative nature of the updates. This reminds me a lot more of GSA Astro, which, you know, I, I think uh, industry was pleased with because there was a lot of engagement with industry to help make sure that the procurement was moving along appropriately and and um, and that you know industry was there helping shape in, uh, 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 along the way so I think from my perspective I think GSA's done a good job there's some things around the scorecard and how they determine thresholds that I think you know still leave me to scratch my head but um, but yeah uh, uh, overall I think GSA's done good work and so you know just uh, you know peel back the onion and that dive a little deeper so just their, their outreach has been great. Just, do you have any thoughts on the uh, the overall acquisition strategy so far? Yeah. So I, I I think one thing that was a little troubling early on was hearing about sort of this one vehicle approach, which I know the coalition was vocal on, and there are some trade associations that um, you know provided feedback in that area. Um, I'm glad again, cognizant of the issue with small businesses and the shrinking number uh, of them. Um, you know, making sure that there was that that the two, the two tracks where you have you know a large business track and a small business track, and you know there's built-in uh, reputation with the with the brand for for Oasis. So I think that was good to see that GSA is um, going to be going in that route. I, you know, I think too, their GSA should be aware of you know some of the troubled rollouts that it's had with you know Alliance specifically. Obviously, the SB vehicle is protested to. To, to death and and then you've had you know Polaris has had had its you know a pause and in, in um, you know in its evaluation so um, I think that's you know helped uh, sort of you know inform how it is that they're approaching this and you know thus the iterative nature of the engagement with the with with industry on on the development of the contract so um, overall I mean I from from my perspective at least I think it's been positive. And so, and how, you know, interesting, uh, you guys are definitely tracking it. I, I don't know, you're, I assume you're working with folks. How are you sort of supporting um, your clients, you know, in the context of looking to the Oasis competition when it finally fully gets off? And the solicitation is issued. Yeah, yeah. So Oasis is going to be a little bit of a of a you know different uh, uh, beast than than sort of the the original iteration. It's not supposed to be a closed solicitation, meaning that once your you know the the comp, the the, the um, you know proposals are in, there's no way for for you to get in unless there's an on ramp. GSA said that they're going to be doing frequent on ramps, quote unquote, and and have this be more of an open solicitation. Um, so we've been working with with companies to one understand what are the the qualification thresholds to 
um, get on the vehicle? How do you present your experience so that you can secure a ward? If there's particular domains that you're not necessarily um, meeting the threshold currently, how do you um, help build experience in that area? Um, there's been some questions about teaming to, to, to get onto particular uh, domains so that you're on that initial rollout of, of the domain when it comes out. Um, the other interesting thing that um, our clients have been tracking is GSA has stated that the information that's submitted with the proposal is going to live in sort of an online repository for agency customers to use in the future and sort of vetting um, organizations that they're going to work with. So you can sort of click down into a particular set of vendors that have qualifications in a certain area or have certain certifications and things of that nature. So how you present that information and house it, I think, is going to be a critical consideration for for, um, for companies so that it's not an, an administrative burden in the future. So that's what we've been we've been um, advising on. Great. So, and you know what? We're up on the break already, uh, Leo, Jeff, Julius. So when we come back, we'll sh shift topics one more, one more time. And we'll talk about M&A. And uh, I think, Julia, you're going to be focusing on that when we come back for that discussion. My guests today are Leo Alvarez, Jeff Clayton, and Julia Smith. They are principals in Baker Tilly's Government Contractor Solutions Group. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Jeff Clayton, Julia Smith, and Leo Alvarez. They are principals in Baker Tilly's Government Contractor Solutions Group. And we've covered a wide-ranging set of topics today, and we're turning to another topic. Uh, this segment, we're going to talk about M&A. And Julia, I want to start with you or and get your thoughts. So what are you seeing in terms of M&A in the federal marketplace right now? Well, overall, not just with federal contractors. And in 2021, we saw an exceptional level of M&A activity uh, because of all the pent up demand uh, during the, the pandemic when there weren't a lot of deals happening. Um, in 2022, the activity has slowed, um, but still remains above pre-pandemic levels. And uh, this trend is, is similar for federal contractors and uh, the level of M&A activity has remained high since 2022. Um, and we expect that to continue and not really slow anytime soon. Um, a lot of the uh, types of acquisitions, types of companies, it's been a lot of services companies and, uh, and or technology companies. So a lot of technology services, consulting, engineering services, um, and just sort of um, some of the more recent ones that come to mind for me uh, Guidehouse has agreed to, to buy Grant Thornton's public sector advisory service, and uh, Kinetic uh, has acquired Avantis from, from a holding company, uh, New Springs. So those are some of the big ones. Now, I mean, also it often, are you, are you seeing the continuation, like, you know, there's always people trying to fill niches that in their portfolios or in the acquisition of key capabilities from small businesses and that sort of thing. Is that uh, a big part of the uptick right now, you know, coming out of COVID? And it seems to me there's I, I just there's a different sort of focus in the government and just, you know, trying to have organic capability across the board. Is that 
yes so what yes. you're seeing yeah that's what we've been seeing too just trying to um, have a broader portfolio and also bring in more niche services that maybe some of the small businesses have um and and as well as total solutions bringing in different technology as into their service offering to complement that as well so we've been um you know, we, we've seen the trend where there's fewer contractors, right, that, that are actually purchasing and, and the M&A is reflecting that as well. So there's there's fewer contractors uh, in the business and they're acquiring companies to to broaden and increase their, their revenues within the federal government. Right. So I'm gonna turn to a little different. So if, um, what are some of the things that, you know, companies, either on the buy side or the sell side should be thinking about and be aware of when, when they're going into these situations. Cause I, you, know, you guys advise companies and you know, I guess look at the books and, you know, doing as part of due diligence. So w- what are some of your key thoughts or observations or advice? Yeah, I'll start with, with the buyer. So if, if you're a company looking to acquire a government contractor, there are many areas that you should investigate when doing the due diligence. Um, but first sort of starting with the company's contract population and the revenues associated with all of those contracts so that you can vet them for potential compliance and financial risks. Cause you wanna do that obviously before the deal is done. Um, and you should be you know, asking questions and finding answers to questions like, um, you know, what's their contract management and compliance infrastructure? Uh, what's their contract waterfall and back, uh, backlog? Uh, small business size status, because that can be important because it could change post-merger as well. So um, having that in mind, um, are there Service Contract Act covered services or SELS services, um, CAS covered, and if that necessary, uh, necessitates preparing billing rates and disclosure statements, um, rate restructures. So it kind of goes on and on um, what you should be aware of and in investigating during that due diligence so that you you aren't met with surprises uh, post-merger. Okay, that's the buy side, right? So the thoughts on the sell side? Yeah, so on the other side, um, if you're being acquired or you're selling off a portfolio of contracts, um, you want to compile or you're looking to be bought. You want to compile all of your government contracts. Make sure your accounting is order in order first of all. Um, and and sellers should be aware during the process um, if they have any obligation to the new company for future support for audit and invoice activity because that can be kind of a surprise to them in some cases. Um, and just in one situation, I, I do want to talk about um, where a company we were involved with, um, they actually identified potential overbillings related to a GSA uh, FSS contract. And it was discovered uh, during due diligence and with just a few weeks before the deal was set to close. Um, so we had to come in with outside counsel and you know quantify and, and put together a mandatory disclosure so that the deal could close on time. So you you want to try to avoid that happening in the in the closing weeks. And while we didn't need to have that disclosure, you know, closed out before the deal closed, um, we we needed to let the you know the buyer know what the breadth and magnitude of the issue was. So 
um, just being prepared and, and really knowing your contract population and portfolio and, and what some of those risks that might come up uh, during due diligence. Right. Yeah, that's great advice. And, um, and you know, real life situations, like uh, big lessons learned there. So and now in turn, so, so now we've had a merger and we're one big happy family, I guess. <laughs> So what are some of the challenges you see for companies that they, they have to deal with or struggle with post-merger? Um, I think Speaking of the happy family, uh, a lot of times when uh, a merger happens, um, you may lose key resources in that transition. And with that goes a lot of you know, foundation and, and critical knowledge that was within, within the company that was acquired. So, um, and typically these are usually, you know, in the contracts department, business development, compliance, FPNA. So um, you want to be prepared um, to be able to deal with, with that loss of, of knowledge and figuring out. I know a lot of deals um, are structured so that certain key employees um, are, are um, available for or are retained for at least a year. Um, but a lot of times these issues can can last longer than that. So you want to make sure that you're retaining data in a usable format. Uh, we've seen a lot of issues with um, data from former companies not uh, being accessible. Uh, and so when you're trying to do things, if you're trying to do a you know a rate restructure or disclosure statement, um, you can have a lot of issues if you if you're not even able to access that data. Um, some other things that uh, can come up when you're integrating into uh, an existing accounting system or ERP system, a lot of issues can pop up there. Um, so, and then other kind of more broad would be contract novations. Um, those can be very difficult sometimes, uh, and then also can lead to to other conflicts of interest as well. Yeah, and I, I mean, it, yeah, I just remember doing novations when I was in the government and you know all that paperwork that needed to be done and what you needed to think about and who's like the one the agency or that would be be the i guess lead and making sure you listed every single contract you had or whatever those those kind of things yeah it's just it sounds simple but it really isn't so yeah uh, a name change is is not very simple uh when it when it leads to having to to novate multiple contracts so I was saying that's important, right? Because that's how you get paid, right? You got to have exactly. the right name on on that federal check coming in, or whatever any check coming in for that matter. So, uh, but you know, guys, we're we're up uh, at the end of the show. So we got we covered a wide range and set of topics: uh, PPP loans, scrims, software supply chain, Oasis Plus, M and A. I mean, that's like. Yeah, it just shows the depths and breadth of all the different things you get to work on. And um, it's a really fascinating show. So I want to thank my guests today, Jeff Clayton, Julia Smith, and Leo Alvarez. They are principals at Baker Tilly's Government Contractors Solution Group. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.